morning as we open up in Acts chapter 18, what I want to remind you of uh, is in Acts chapter 17, Paul has come to a place. He's on his second missionary journey. He's gone to Macedonia, which was on the other side of the, the big creek, if you will, from Asia Minor. And he had had a heart to go to Asia Minor, but when he went there again, up in the upper left of that map, you see Troas and Assos. He sailed across to Philippi at the leading of the Lord. He ended up there and he, he basically he planted a church there. But when he traveled on, he moved to Thessalonica and there he found a group. He went to the synagogue, he preached, and many believed. And then there was this large group that did not believe. They were Jewish, uh, Jewish people that were in the synagogue and were absolutely against the message that Paul preached. And so they rioted and they caused a big disturbance. And there were many who believed there, but there were also many who were against the message that Paul preached. And so he moved on to the city of Berea. And when he arrived there, in Acts chapter 17, verse 11, it says that the Bereans were known for being more noble because they received the word that was being taught with all readiness, but they didn't stop there. They went home and they tested what Paul had taught them. They tested it against what their scriptures said. And so they were more noble, not because they just received anything, but because they tested it against the word of God to see if the things that he was teaching were true or not. Well, there were many people because of that practice that came to belief in Jesus Christ and there was a church planted there as well. But as any time when God starts to do a good work, there's always opposition. And so because there was opposition, those Thessalonians that were against Paul, knowing Paul went to Berea, they followed him. And by the time that God had already done a work there, they joined the town and they started taking evil men, stirring them up, and rioting in Berea to distract and cause chaos and, and basically to send Paul out of town. Well, as we've talked about before, you can take the messenger and send him away, but when the message has already arrived, you can't get rid of the message. The gospel had already been planted. And so Paul recognized, it's time for me to move on so these believers can continue in the faith and not be distracted by things that don't matter. Paul knew the gospel was not about him being there. It was about Jesus being their Lord. And so as he left, the brethren there told him, you need to go on. This is crazy. Let us continue to minister here. Send us down through the, and he sent them down. Excuse me, Paul got on a ship and he sailed down to Athens. And as he went down to Athens, excuse me, he arrived there and he walked into the city. Now, Timothy and Silas, his travel companions, they stayed in Macedonia. That's the region where Berea and Thessalonia are. And when they stayed, Paul sailed to Athens until he could send for Timothy and Silas. They stayed there to build up the church. Excuse me. So when he arrived in Athens, it's a Greek town in the south of Greece, he walked around the city to kind of get his bearings to see where there might be some opportunity to share the gospel because that's why he was sent. And as he walked around the city, he noticed that the town was given over to the worship of idols, these little statues. And I talked about last week how there was 20 to 30,000 idols. They were very religious, Paul said. And so as he walked around the city, he would share the gospel in the synagogue as he always did. He would share it with people in the marketplace. 
And everywhere he went, he looked for God giving him opportunities to speak to individual people about Jesus Christ. And as he did so, God gave him a connection with somebody that was a philosopher in the Areopagus. We know this as Mars Hill. And it was basically the town center where they would get together and share ideas, philosophy, ways of life. And as they did that, basically Paul preached the gospel. He said, Our, the God that you worship as the unknown God, because they were so religious, they even had a statue there that was called to the unknown, unknown God because they didn't want to miss one and make him mad. And so they worshiped this unknown God through a statue. And so what Paul said is he said, this God that you worship is unknown. I come here to proclaim him to you. He's the God who made heaven and earth and everything in it. He's the one who sustains heaven and earth and everything in it. He's the one that gives you life in the breath that's in your lungs. He's the one that sustains the life that you have. And I think it's funny because a lot of people can explain life, but they can't explain what keeps our hearts beating. And neither can I, other than it's the Lord. He gives us life and breath. And so as he's preaching, it seems in Athens, there really wasn't much of a response, yay or nay. There were a few people that came to faith in Jesus, but the primary group of philosophers there, their response was they would either mock him they said, you're an idiot. You know, I don't think anything that you said makes any sense. And then there was another group that said, uh, come tell us again about it later. So there's always a group that will reject what you have to say. We know that. If you've ever shared the gospel, people are like, well, I don't think he's the only way to go to heaven. Uh, he's the king of it. So I'm going to assume that I don't know that you can get there by any other way. But then there will always be the group that says, I'm not really ready for it yet. Why don't we talk about it later? I want to keep living for now. But there's, then again, there's always a remnant. There's always a couple people that will hear it. They'll think about it and they'll receive it. And we saw last week that actually one of the council members of the Areopagus, this high council had a 30 judges. One of the judges said, hey, I believe you. I, I want to follow Jesus with you. And then there was also a woman among them who believed. And there were many others. But those are the two they list out specifically. So as he's got a response and didn't really get any negative response, no rioting this time, he's like, well, it's time to move on. And he goes to a place of Corinth. Now, Corinth from Athens is due west. And if you'll notice there, Corinth is kind of right there in between the mainland of Achaia and Corinth, which is kind of a really large peninsula. It's a big body of land that has a small stretch of land leading up to it called an isthmus. Corinth was known for being a city of trade because it has the ocean, basically these seas on both sides. You got the Aegean Sea on the east, and then the Mediterranean kind of goes up, and there's like a little bay there. But that little stretch of land that Corinth is on is actually kind of covered by that black dot. That black dot is where many ships would come in, inside between Achaia and Corinth, and they would dock there and they would trade. But in order to go to the other side of this big peninsula, they would have to either back up, sail all the way around, which was very dangerous, or they would portage their boats, their ships, across that small stretch of land. If you guys are familiar with South America at all, it's kind of like Panama, where they put the Panama Canal in years ago. They did that because 
If you didn't go across the Panama Canal, you would have to sail all the way around South America down to the southernmost point, and it's very dangerous. So, because they had this little land bridge, if you will, to take the ships across, they would do that. And it would take many days because it was many miles. So can you imagine these ships coming in, they trade, they lighten the load, and then they would load them up on these logs and roll them all the way to the other side to get to the next body of water. So because of that, sailors would port there and they would spend some time. I don't know if you guys know any sailors or anybody that's in the Navy or was in the past. Sailors like to party it up when they go into port. They've been out on the sea for many months and they want to live it up because they, won't, they don't know when they'll go back again. Well, <clears throat> sailors back then were no different. And so they would spend time there. And the city of Corinth, because of that, would have people from all over the world traveling through it. Many foreign gods, many young men. Um, but what happened in Corinth is there was a temple there to the goddess called Aphrodite. And Aphrodite was worshipped in this big temple. It was the center of the city. It's where you would go to have a good time. It's kind of like a bar. You would go there. They would have all kinds of entertainment, dancing. But one of the things they would do while they were there was worship. And they would worship Aphrodite, who was the goddess of fertility, by committing sexual acts with prostitutes. Now, they didn't call them prostitutes. They would call them priestesses and priests because fornication sounds way better if you make it religious, right? And so that's what they did. They would go there, they would pay money, they would get with a prostitute, basically, and the money would go to support the building of the temple and the worship of their god, Aphrodite. So, because of this, I give you that all, all that background because this was a city that was not known for being moral at all. It was a very immoral and debauched city. As a matter of fact, if you've ever seen any sort of Greek play that has its writings from the origin from Greece, you'll know that any time that there's a character that they want to call, he's going to be kind of one of those like town drunk kind of characters in the play, he's actually, it's always written in the script that he should be a Corinthian. Basically, it's become synonymous with debauchery and immorality. And so usually the character when he's played, and I say this because in high school we had a play called A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum. And in the play, there was actually a character that was known as a Corinthian. And he would walk around and his character would always act like he was drunk. And he would make all kinds of lewd comments. And so... That's what everyone knew Corinthians as, immoral, debauched people. So Paul shows up in this town getting ready to preach the gospel. And you would think, well, this isn't the place you want to go for that. It would be like going to Las Vegas and saying, hey, I'm going to start a church there. By the way, some of those cities, because of the stigma that goes along with them, are the least likely for people to share the gospel. Does that mean they don't need the gospel there? Absolutely not. It means they need it even more, uh, if there's a more or less, you know. So Paul arrives there, and he starts to walk around just like he did in all the other places. So that's where we find ourselves in Acts chapter 18 this morning. I finally got to the text. 
It says there in verse 1, After these things, Paul departed from Athens, and he went to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. And this is why he came from Italy. Because Claudius, who was the Caesar at that time, the Roman ruler, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart, to leave from Rome. And he came to them. So Paul is in Corinth. Where's Paul from? Not Corinth. He's a a world traveler. And he comes across this Jew by the name of Aquila, who is not from Corinth. They're, They're both from out of town. But in this large city, they just so happen to cross paths. I love how the Lord does that. Because when you meet someone, whether it's through work, whether it's traveling, you got to know that in God's economy, it's never by accident. Never. There's no coincidence. There's no luck with the Lord. It's all a part of his plan. And so Paul, knowing this, having experienced it in his own life, he meets Aquila, asks, asks him some questions, gets to know where he's from and why he's there. And because of that, he builds this relationship that we'll find out in scripture lasts a long time. Because by the time they leave Corinth, which is almost two years later, Aquila and Priscilla, his wife, leave with Paul to continue ministering. I think sometimes we think that God wants us to be alone. Sometimes people get the idea that there's such thing as a lone ranger Christian, but there's not. Paul is away from Silas and Timothy, and so God sends him some people to work with, to encourage one another. And we see here that it's Aquila. Verse 3. It says there in verse 3, Because he was of the same trade, Paul stayed with them and he worked. For by occupation they were tent makers. Paul wasn't just a minister. He wasn't just a preacher. He also had a trade by which he made money. He was a tent maker. And we know this because it not only says it here, but in the region of Cilicia where he's from, they were known for getting basically the goat hair off of goats and they would use it to make material to make tents. And those tents were worldwide known. I mean, they were known for making tents. That's what their region exported. And so Paul, being a uh, rabbi in training before he came to Christ, they would always take these young ministers that were going through the training to be a rabbi and they would say, look, if you're, when you give your lessons to someone else, they're not going to pay you. So you need to get a trade so that you can support yourself, so you can earn bread and sustain yourself by living. Make a living, basically. So Paul, was he, his trade was tent making. He was called to preach the gospel. That didn't mean that he no longer would have to work. That meant that he would still be able to sustain himself even if the church that he went to wouldn't be able to. And so this is a good thing. Um, Many pastors, when they go to Bible college, the, the people that invest in them will tell them, you need to learn a trade so that if you go to plant a church and that's what God's called you to, you're not a burden on the church until maybe one day when God would open that up where you would be paid. But Paul later would tell the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians, I didn't ever take a salary from you because money was a big thing to you. 
And so rather than stumble you and make it so you wouldn't listen to me because I was taking pay, so you wouldn't be able to say, oh, he's just preaching because he gets paid. I made tents all night and then I would share the gospel during the day. I never took a paycheck from you, lest anyone would boast that I was getting paid. You didn't pay me, God paid me by the work of my hands. And so Paul, being a tent maker, was able to sustain himself, not be a burden on the church, not stumble anybody from hearing the gospel. And you hear this all the time. I don't go to church. I'm not listening to that pastor. He's just doing it for the money. And they say that because they saw somebody on TV that was begging for money. And in our culture, money's a big deal. It stumbles many people. The love, the love of money is the root of all evil, not money itself. But because we love money, it becomes the wrong motive. We see other people that have money and it stumbles us. We start to think, well, they're all in it for the cash. So Paul said, I don't want to take a paycheck. And in many cases, other churches supported him so that he could remain at Corinth and minister. It wasn't about anybody else. So here's what happened. <clears throat> because of the same trade, he stayed with them and he worked for by occupation. They were tent makers. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and he persuaded both Jews and Greeks. So he, he did the same thing he did in every town. He went to the synagogue. Why? Because those people, that place was a place where the word of God was being taught. So he had a place to start from. So as he went there, he reasoned in the synagogue and he persuaded Jews and Greeks to believe in Jesus. Verse five says that when Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the spirit and he testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Messiah. I don't want us to miss this. Paul's already been preaching in the synagogue. He's already been persuading many to believe in Jesus. But it seems there in verse 5 that when Silas and Timothy, who were in Macedonia up north, finally make it down to where Paul is. He's not in Athens. He's in Corinth. And when they get there, it seems that something about them showing up and being around him emboldens him. He didn't quit doing what he was doing, but it seems that when they show up, when they arrive, perhaps they had told him, hey, guess what? God's still at work in Macedonia. Keep going. Don't be disheartened by the riots that you saw before you left. And so when they show up in verse five, it says, at that moment, to me, I see this as a cause and effect. Paul and Sil excuse me, Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia. Paul was compelled by the spirit, the effect, and he testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. He didn't piddle around. He didn't beat around the bush. Now he's saying, believe in Jesus. He is the Messiah that all of our Old Testament scriptures were leading to. And so it says there, but when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and he said to them, your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. So it seems that he was preaching there but when Paul and Timothy and Silas show up, all of a sudden it seems like Paul gets more bold. He's no longer piddling around, but he's like, let's get to, the, let's get to the, where the rubber meets the road. Jesus is the Messiah. Salvation comes through him. There's no other name given among women, excuse me, given among men that we much, must be saved by. 
And notice that when he says that, all of a sudden people are recoiling. They're rejecting it. They're saying, you know, it says there that they opposed him and they blasphemed. They were against his message and they even started to say, Jesus is not the Messiah. He's not here yet because the, Jesus died. How can our Messiah that we believe was going to come and set up his kingdom, why would he die? That seems like the worst Messiah ever. He didn't even live. They killed him. And not only did they kill him, but he gave himself up willingly. He didn't even fight back. So that's their struggle. They, they believed that the Messiah was going to come and rule and reign now. But when he came the first time, Scripture tell, tells us, and even the Old Testament testifies, that he would come to, to die in our place to deal with sin first. Now when he returns, he will be a king. He'll be the king of kings, the Lord of lords. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. No one will have a choice at that point. That's why it's beautiful when Jesus tells um, one of his disciples after he ascends, he says, blessed are those who believe and have not yet seen me. So <clears throat> Paul proclaims this. But when they opposed him and they blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, your blood be upon your own head, I'm clean. But before I go there, I want to point out this idea that Silas and Timothy could have such an effect on Paul is found in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. The writer there to the Hebrews, many believe it was Paul, some others believe that it was Apollos, I'm uh, kind of at this point, it doesn't matter to me. It's in scripture and what it has to say lines up with the rest of the passages. But in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23, the writer there encourages those he's writing to. He says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. In other words, the confession is that Jesus is Lord. Let's hold fast to that. He says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And then verse 24, which is our men's Bible study, key verse, it says, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. But how does he say to do that? Because he doesn't just say, just do it. He's not like Nike, just do it. He gives instruction on how to consider one another to love and good works, to build one another up. He says there in verse 25, by not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some. He says, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day, the day of Christ's return, approaching. So he says there, in order to stir one another up to good love and good works, in order to live out this Christian life in a way that glorifies God and blesses the people we come into contact with, one of the things we need to do as a church, he's writing here to the Hebrews, is don't forsake the assembling together of one another to do that. And it's, here's the idea. You ever sit around a bonfire and play with it? Of course, my mom and dad always said, if you play with fire, you're going to pee a bed. Well, here, let, let me tell you this. Number one, you won't pee to bed necessarily. <laughs> I found that out. But the other side is, is if you take one of the coals in the fire and you set it outside of the fire, what happens to it? It kind of burns out. It, it loses its heat. 
But if you take that coal and you put it back inside the fire, what happens? It lights up again. It's just as hot as the rest of the fire. In the same way, here's what happens. Sunday morning, that's the fire for us. As the body of Christ, we all gather together and we assemble together. And then when we disperse, we're not around one another anymore. It's not that we lose our salvation or anything like that. But the idea is we kind of lose our heat as we're in this cold, dark world. And then we need to get together again. And so the Lord brings us together every week. Some churches get together multiple times a week. Maybe down the road we'll be able to do that. But the idea is is that we need to be reminded who we're living for and what we hope in. And as we do that, it emboldens us to live our lives out to please God. We need that encouragement weekly, daily. Some of us get together outside of church and that's what God uses it for. But we think of the church as a gathering. And my pastor explains it this way. He says, when you take that bucket of Legos that your kids have and you dump it out, we think of the church as a gathering together of believers But a gathering is where you would take all those Legos and you'd pile them up in a small pile instead of spread all over the floor because if you've ever stepped on one of those in the middle of the night, it hurts. You know, you got kids playing with toys, they leave them everywhere. You want to have them in one spot so you don't kill yourself on them at two in the morning when you get up to use the restroom. But they're gathered. There's no purpose. It's just a, a big pile. And then you put them in that big blue container that I had when I was growing up to put them away. But the Lord doesn't do that with this church. It says there, not forsaking the assembling together of one another. When you take Legos and you pile them, that's gathering. But what God does with you and I, the church, his desire is to assemble us together so that we are now one piece that serves a purpose made out of many pieces assembled together. And so that Star Wars figure or that little car with wheels It has a purpose, right? Well, the church has a purpose. And so if we are assembled together, each one of us offering what we have to offer the body of Christ, we minister to and for one another, what happens is that we're built up and God can use us as a corporate body to bless our area. And so when Paul and when Timothy and Silas show back up, They're assembling with Paul. They're reminding him of God's faithfulness. And as a result, they embolden him. And so, harangue over. (laughs) That's my point. We need to assemble as body of believers to have this boldness that Paul did. And Paul needed it just as much as you and I do. But it says there, when they opposed him and they blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. For now I go, will go to the Gentiles. But before we go on, I want to point out, when he's saying that, he's shaking off the dust from his garments. He's telling them, look, I've given you the message. I can't cause you to change. I'm telling you the truth so that you have the opportunity to make that decision on your own. And the idea is found in Ezekiel chapter 3. <clears throat> in Ezekiel chapter 3, uh, God has given Ezekiel a message to the nation of Israel. And what he tells them is found there in verse 17. He says to him, he says, Son of man, speaking to Ezekiel, I've made you a watchman for the house of Israel. 
Therefore, hear a word from my mouth and give them warning from me. When I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way to save his life, that same wicked man shall die in his iniquity because he didn't receive the warning. He says, but his blood I will require at your hand because you weren't faithful to give him the message that I sent. However, if you warn the wicked, you give him the message that I've given you, and he does not turn from his wickedness nor from his wicked way, he shall still die in his iniquity, but you have delivered your soul. His blood is not on your hands. You've been faithful to tell him what I wanted to tell him. In other words, when God's messengers are given a message from the Lord and they don't give it, their blood is on our hands. If we've been given the message of salvation and God says, I want you to speak that to someone that you work with in your family, whatever, and you don't speak it and they die, that's on you. Because God told you, I want you to tell them. Show mercy. Share the message. Tell God's story of redemption. But if you tell them and they respond by rejecting it, that's not on you. You've been faithful. That's on them. They didn't respond. So that's, to me, encouraging because even Paul knew this very fact. That's why he went, spent his whole life telling as many people as possible. And that's why when they didn't respond, he he didn't sweat it. He still wanted them to believe, and he had a heart for them to believe, but if they didn't, he moved on. He shook the dust off his jacket. He said, your blood be upon your own hands. I've told you all that I know. From now on, he tells them, I will go to the Gentiles. He tells every town this. He always goes to the Jews first, and then he says, since you won't listen, I'm going to the Gentiles. Well, he was supposed to anyway. (laughs) The, The Bible calls him the apostle to the Gentiles. And he departed from there and he entered the house of a certain man named Justice, one who worshiped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. So that though Paul's message was now going to the Gentiles, he was Jewish at heart. He still wanted to share with as many Jews that would believe because he was a Jewish man who had believed the gospel. And so he finds a place to stay, no longer with Aquila and Priscilla, but with Justice. But notice that his house is now connected to the temple, the synagogue in town. So he would still see them every day. He would still be able to pray for them. He would still be able to talk to them. And then it says, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed, and were baptized. So it seems because of his close proximity to the synagogue, that the ruler, the one who would order the service of the synagogue, the place of worship for the Jews, the very leader of the synagogue, knowing Paul, living next door to him, basically, he heard the gospel and he believed. So though the Jews that went to the synagogue didn't believe, the leader there did. And because of that, his whole household believed. And many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed, and were baptized. Now, Paul's had this moment of boldness. God's on the move, and there are many believing the gospel. But it seems here that Paul's a little scared because in verse 9, it says, Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. And the Lord will do this. 
If you really are hungry for a word from the Lord, and he has to sometimes wait until you're in your quiet moments before he can speak to you because there's too much noise in your life. And for Paul, it seems that he was busy all day. So when he's sleeping at night, the Lord wakes him up. He gives him a vision. And here's what the Lord says to him. In your Bibles, it might not be this way, but in mine, the words there are in red. That tells me that it's the Lord himself speaking to Paul. And here's the words that he speaks to him. Do not be afraid, but speak. Do not keep silent. For I am with you and no one will attack you to hurt you. For I have many people in this city. So Jesus' message to Paul here is don't be afraid. Now I don't know about you guys, but I think about the great apostle Paul. He wrote a good portion of the New Testament. He spent many missionary journeys and later down the road he actually dies for the faith. But he was still just like you and I. Sometimes we get those moments of boldness. We share with somebody and we start to doubt afterwards. Did I go too far? Did I press the envelope too much? Is this going to come back on me? And Paul, I love this, was afraid. I say that because Jesus wouldn't tell him, don't be afraid, if he wasn't afraid. He told him, do not be afraid, but keep speaking. Because you know what fear does in the life of a Christian? It causes us to not speak. It causes us to close our mouths and to stop telling people what we know about the Lord. He says, don't be afraid. And then later Paul writes in one of his epistles, he says, for God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. So if you're ever fearful, recognize that that fear has not been given to you by God. That's the enemy trying to get you to stop speaking, to stop living. But what the Lord does is he says, don't be afraid. But because of you're not being afraid, speak, go, go big time. He says, for I am with you. And that's really the promise of all of scripture. God never told us that when we got saved, everything would be perfect or that life would be easy. What God told us is he says, I will be with you. Remember, we already said this in Matthew chapter 28. It says, go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching those disciples to obey all the things that I've taught you. And then many people forget this little phrase at the end because they're not sure what it means. But what he says, with the command he gave, he also gave a promise. He says, and lo, I am with you to the end of the age. In other words, this thing I'm giving to you, it's impossible for you to do it without me. And he gave them that command after he told them, I will give you the Holy Spirit who will make you bold. But don't be worried when you're in the middle of the thing and you get scared. Don't be scared because I'm going to be with you. And I love that promise because above anything else in the Bible, God's given us a promise that no matter what happens in our lives, he will be with us. And that's what gets us through the hard times, the times of doubt, the times of struggle. And the Apostle Paul apparently needed to be reminded of this. Yes, your friends are back with you. And yes, you've been bold. But guess what? I'm with you. Even when they're not there, I'm there. And so it says after that, verse 11, he continued there a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. A year and six months. 
Kelly and I have been here for a year and six months. Well, a little bit over that. I think it's about a year and seven months. We haven't lived down here that long, but we've been, since March of 2013, we began a Bible study in Bobby Powell's. But we've been down here about that long. I think oftentimes in our, in our lives, we, we, we're kind of microwave type people. We want things here and now. We want to eat a meal. We want it quick. We want to <clears throat> see something on TV. We just hit a button and we can see the movie. If we've got TV, we've got the antenna, so who knows what we get. But the reality is, is we like things to happen now. We like fireworks. You light them and they go, bam, awesome, entertainment. But the Lord, when he does a work, it's not oftentimes as quickly as we'd like it to be. The Lord grows us like he grows plants. But in order for a plant to grow from a seedling to a, a larger plant that can produce fruit, it takes time, it takes energy, it takes effort, it takes water, it takes pruning sometimes, it takes weeding. Nobody likes to weed a garden. But the Lord, as he grows us, he spends that time and he shows that in the heart of the Apostle Paul here because as the Apostle Paul is laboring, it seems like he's been going from church to church to church to church. And it's like, what's he doing? Well, he's preaching the gospel and he's raising up others to stay there and to water the seeds that have been planted. But it seems that Paul has a specific heart for these Corinthians and he knows that it's going to take a little bit longer at this place. So what he does as he stays there a year and a half, and he preaches. And he doesn't just proclaim the gospel and preach, but he also takes the, the scriptures like we do here on Sunday morning, and he goes through verse by verse, and he teaches them. He feeds them the word of God in a way that they can receive it, chew on it, and accept it into their bodies, and let that be what makes them grow. It's not like lighting a firework like we would like. It's not like a Billy Graham crusade where he gets up, he speaks for a while, and then hundreds of people respond. If you'll notice from week to week, you don't know how many people are even going to be here. But the reality is, is that God builds his kingdom by using individuals who speak to individuals. And as they respond to the gospel, little by little, God gains ground and other people come to know the Lord. More people will come to know the Lord through you guys getting to know Jesus and sharing that with other people than he will from me getting up here and sitting on the stool and teaching the Bible every week. If it was about me, then hardly anybody's going to come to know the Lord. But our evangelism program here at this church is that you guys would fall in love with the Lord and that as you are in love with the Lord, <clears throat> people will naturally hear you guys speak about what you love. And they'll want that relationship that you have. It'll be a tangible thing that they'll desire. Paul took the time to build up those who had received the gospel. He taught them for a year and a half. But what I want to point out is that when he leaves, he's raised up folks to invest in that church. That church remains. And what we'll find later is that it was a church full of messes. People that are imperfect. People that only think about themselves. People that are still worried about worshiping idols. The Lord isn't finished with that church, even though Paul's been there a year and a half. And what we're going to see down the road when we've studied 1 Corinthians is that they still had lots of wrong ideas about the Lord. They still had areas that God had to work on them in. But it began with somebody loving those people enough, willing to stay there and invest in them, 
to preach the gospel, to bear with them when they were being ridiculous, and then even being willing to be arrested because it says there in verse 12 that apparently at one point after this year and a half, there was a proconsul in Achaia, verse 12, and the Jews with one accord are still against Paul. So they brought Paul to the judgment seat of this secular judge saying this fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law because Judaism was something that was okay by the law according to Caesar in their province. But when Paul was about to open his mouth and defend himself, it seems that God already went before him and Galileo, this secular judge, said to the Jews, he says, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, O Jews, there would be a reason why I should bear with you. But if it's a question of words and names and your own religious law, he says, look to it yourselves, for I do not want to be a judge of such matters. There seems to be a separation in his ideology of church and state. And the separation of church and state was never to keep the church from affecting the state. It was always to keep the state from ruling inside the churches. We've gotten it backwards. We're trying to keep religion out of society. But it was to keep society from affecting religion. It was to keep the government from getting involved in the things of the Lord. And so that aside, what Paul is doing here is he's been arrested. He's been taken before this proconsul. They want to put him in jail. They want to do something with him and, and have him stopped. But this proconsul is like, this has nothing to do with the laws of Caesar. And so remember what the Lord has already told him. He says, don't be afraid, but speak. Do not keep silent, for I'm with you. No one will attack you to hurt you. It doesn't say anything about there that no one will bring you before the council and try to per prosecute you. He says, but they won't be able to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. Apparently, Galileo was somebody that God had in influence over. And so Galileo said, I'm not going to do anything to this guy. He hasn't broken the law. And he drove them from the judgment seat. He said, yeah, I'm dismissing the charges. This is ridiculous. I'm not going to deal with it. And then, verse 17, the Greeks took Sosthenes, who's the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. Right there, after he said, I'm not going to deal with this case, the Greeks who are standing there, they beat the ruler of the synagogue, who is no longer Crispus, but is Sosthenes. And we don't know much about Sosthenes, but apparently he was a believer, because otherwise they wouldn't beat him. Uh, Paul, because of his testimony, is having much ground taken for the gospel. And apparently, because they dismissed the charges completely, they want to show their disapproval of what this judge has done. And so they take the ruler of the synagogue, and they beat him right in front of the judge. But notice what the judge does. Galileo, he took no notice of these things. He turned a blind eye to it. He didn't want to deal with the case against Paul because Paul hadn't broken the law. And then these men that had brought Paul to the council, they outright beat this guy in front of the judge. And the judge is like, I'm turning a blind eye to this. I didn't see anything. So it seems like he's kind of a wet noodle in many ways. He won't deal with any justice. He won't get involved at all because he doesn't want to stir things up. But <clears throat> I guess if there's anything I want you to take away from this morning, it's that Paul, even though he's the great apostle Paul, he's just like you and I. 
He needs encouragement. And though he never gave up on the mission to share the gospel, it seems that he was discouraged at times, and at times he wasn't as sharp as others. But when he got fellowship with other brethren, when he got fellowship with Timothy and Silas, it emboldened him to go hard for the Lord. Our relationships with one another should embolden us to go hard for the Lord, to share the truth. And I'm not talking about getting up on a soapbox at work and saying, hey, everybody listen to me. Because many of us, we don't have that opportunity. If we share the gospel at all at work, we should do it while we're working and not taking away from what we're supposed to be doing for our employers. Because if we take a bunch of time out and we start sharing the gospel with people and we're not doing our jobs, we're robbing from our employer. God doesn't want us to do that either. But the other side of it is, is that the Lord does want to use us in those different areas of our lives. But also, when you do that, there are going to be times where you feel like you've went out a little too far. Maybe you stepped out on faith and didn't realize it. And you're going to be discouraged because you're going to start to wonder, am I going to get in trouble for this? And I believe the message that the Lord wants to give each one of us is, don't be afraid, but speak. Speak the gospel. Even if it's just in conversation. Somebody wrongs you. Somebody mocks you. Forgive them. They won't know what to do with that. They'll expect you to retaliate. It just happened to me last week. Somebody mocked me over and over again about something I had done in my job. I, I went through with it because I thought it was the right thing to do. And then all the things that he thought were going to take place, he thought we were going to lose this order because I was charging too much for it. The person came back and they bought what I had quoted to them, even though the guy that kept telling me, you got to lower your price, you got to lower your price. And I said, I can't lower the price. I'd be doing the company harm. So I didn't. And then after that, he submitted the quote to the person that was going to buy it. And he thought, we lost this order. And he even said that, we lost this order. And he came back to me, you know what he said? They bought it. And I could have very easily said, I told you so. But I felt like the Lord was saying, don't, don't do that. Be graceful. Speak to him words of grace. Don't mock him. Say, hey, it's okay. And so I did. And he really thought I was being sarcastic. He was expecting me to mock him and take it out on him. But I looked at him and I was like, hey, God used it because I, I did need to lower my, my price a little bit in this other area. I didn't look at it close enough. So it was good. Both of us were used. And he was expecting me to mock him, but because I didn't, because I showed mercy and I didn't consider myself more pridefully than I considered him. And I treated him like Jesus treats me. Jesus never looks at me and says, I told you so. He goes, I knew you'd come around. I love you. I'm willing to bear with you. And the reality is, is that God's calling us to do that in many other people's lives. And because Paul continued preaching, he knew the Lord was with him, that he would protect him. Paul knew that he could let it rip all he wanted. Because in the Lord, the safest thing we can do for our lives is be obedient to what God tells us to do. And if we will do that, God will protect us along the way. If we're taken up before a ruler, if we get to a place in our country where it means that I could go to jail for preaching Leviticus that says that homosexuality is not okay, if I'm faithful to teach God's word and to not back down from it, even if I go to jail, God's going to be with me. He's going to protect me. He's going to use me in the jail. That doesn't mean that it'll be easy. doesn't mean that it'll be easy for my family, but God, even in those areas, he'll take care of them. 
All we're called to do is be obedient to the things that he's showing us now and he'll protect us. He'll be with us. That's where we'll stop this week. Father, thank you so much. Um, I guess I went a little long this morning, but I appreciate the fact that your word is so intricately honest about those who you use. I, oftentimes we see these different opportunities where we've got children's Bibles and books about Bible characters and they call them the heroes of the faith. And Father, the only thing that makes any of us a hero of the faith is that you're with us. The hope of glory is not that we have anything to offer anyone else or even you. The hope of glory is the fact that you, despite all of our frailties, despite all of our doubts, despite everything about us, that you use us to bring glory to your name. It's just an amazing thing to me, Lord. Thank you for the honesty about Paul that sometimes he wasn't as bold as others and he needed fellowship. And Lord, help us to have a heart to consider one another, to stir one another up to love and good works, not forsaking the fellowship of the brethren, but gathering together regularly and assembling. Lord, use us corporately. Use the gifts that you've instilled in us to bless one another and to bless others. And at the same time, Lord, when we're obedient and things start to look a little hairy, thank you that you promised to be with us. Protect us, Lord, as we desire to be obedient. And as we take those steps of faith, Lord, let not the enemy cause any doubts or fears. Help us to not be afraid, but to speak and leave the rest up to you. Father, we love you. Thank you for this time this morning. I pray that you would bless your church. Lord, uh, continue to build us up, to use us in our families. Pray for those that are in our families that don't know you. Pray for salvation. And Lord, I pray for our coworkers as we spend the bulk of our time with our coworkers. Use us as your mouthpiece. Use us as your ministers, your ambassadors to them. Lord, may we see salvation happen and may we see uh, your uh, light shine in our lives and in theirs. So Father, we just, uh, we sing this last song as worship to you for all that you have done and all that you will do. In Jesus' name, amen.